been looking forward to this lesson. This is perhaps the hub of this book, is this grand moment now. We have seen in Exodus that God has used nine plagues up to this point as judgments against Egypt to show Pharaoh, to show the Egyptians, to show Israel, and to show the world who the Lord is that we should listen to Him. That is the question of the book in Exodus 5 and verse 2. Pharaoh asked, who is the Lord that I should listen to Him? And now after nine devastating plagues. Pharaoh has not relented yet. You have even his own people and the magicians telling him, just let them go. Just make it stop. And yet we learned last week in looking at the hardness of Pharaoh's heart uh, that he refused to submit to the will of God. He refused to yield to God's will. And so now it is time for the tenth and final plague upon which now God is going to let the people go. And you notice in, in chapter 11, what you have happening in, in this is just simply an announcement of what is going to happen in regards to this final plague. In Exodus chapter 11 and verse 2, notice Moses isn't just talking to Pharaoh, but he says there in verse 2, speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man and his neighbor and every woman and neighbor for silver and for jewelry. I want everybody to hear what is going to happen with this final plague that is going to come. Verse 4, so Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out of the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But a dog shall not growl against any of the people of Israel, neither man nor beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. How interesting this final plague is. And I think for us who have grown up in the pews, we're accustomed to hearing the the ten plagues. And it's easy for us to just miss the severity of what was just said. The firstborn of every single family that is in the land of Egypt, and it didn't matter who it was, all the way up to the household of Pharaoh, down to the slave households, and even reaching out to the livestock. Those firstborn are going to die. I mean, what a declaration. What a horrifying judgment that God now has to bring upon the nation of Egypt. And and I think when we can step back and just soak in how 
staggering this plague is, I don't think it's too hard to understand why Moses leaves Pharaoh's presence in that way. This is a horrifying thing to have to say. You come in before this nation and come in before Pharaoh and say, every single household is going to lose its firstborn. And you want to know why? Because you, Pharaoh, wouldn't relent and bend your knee and yield to the will of God. There's an indignation to what's happening here. This didn't have to happen if you would have just submitted to the will of God. Why have you not done this? Because you've noticed how these things just seem to be getting worse and worse because what devastated at one point, now another plague comes and devastates some more and the nation is already crippled and then yet another plague comes and devastates some more and another and another and it's just piling up on itself like a snowball. All of the pain and the suffering and the losses, the devastation is hitting and hitting and hitting. And now finally, here is Moses going, and if you thought the other nine were bad, this is going to be so bad that it's going to say in verse 6 that there's going to be a cry so great that goes throughout the land that it will have never been before and there will never be again. And it will be so bad that in verse 8, all of your servants are going to come bow their knee before me and tell me to get out of here. And get the people out. That's the proclamation that's made about how bad it's going to be. And that's what verses 9 and 10 are reiterating. Why is this happening? Verse 9. God, here's God saying to Pharaoh, I mean saying to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And that's exactly what Moses and Aaron have done, have done these wonders so that God would be magnified. You want to know why you need to listen to the Lord? This is a resounding finale now that is being laid out. In fact, what happens here in this final plague is so significant that it is now going to change the whole lifestyle of the nation of Israel. And that's what chapter 12 lays out is that there is the Passover that is now instituted. And and listen to what it says just in the very beginning there in chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of a year for you. This Passover moment and this final plague, the death of the firstborn, would change the life of Israel so radically that now the calendar was going to change for Israel from now on. This month would now be the beginning of months. This event would mark the new year. This is going to be a memorial to you of grand significance that your calendar will now be altered by. It is what God is saying. And then as they're told to them, on the tenth day, of this month. Every man will take a lamb for his household. And if that household was too small, that they couldn't eat all of that lamb, then you were to gather another household and join together so that the whole lamb would be consumed and there would not be anything left over. The lamb needed to be without blemish in verse 5. And that was also allowed to be a sheep or a goat. Important to note. Because I don't think of it only as lamb. You could choose a sheep or a goat to be 
this one without blemish that could be eaten. The lamb was then to be kept after being selected on the 10th day until the 14th day of the month. And on the 14th day of the month at twilight, the lambs would be slaughtered. Verse 6. And then once the lamb was killed, instructed in verse 7 that the people would take some of the blood and put it on the tops and the sides of the door frames of the house in which they were eating. The meat was to be roasted and then eaten that night with unleavened bread and bitter herbs in verse 8. And there was not to be any leftovers and the remains were to be burned by morning, verse 10. And then finally, they were to eat the lamb with their belts fastened and their sandals on their feet, their staff in hand, and they were to eat it in haste because now they were going to be set free. And so all of this is preparation for this moment. All of this is setting up now. You are going to remember this. This is changing the whole life of Israel. And it's not just at this moment, but it's going to be something that would be commemorated for all generations is what God is going to go on to say. But here in verse 13, you'll notice he states something extremely significant. Verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you. On the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. That is a significant declaration that's made there. And I think it's pretty interesting that he says that because there's a new dimension now to the concept of blood. We learn all the way back in Genesis chapter 9 that life was in the blood. God states that very early on right there with Noah. Life is in the blood and so it's to be protected and respected. And now you have another dimension to the blood and notice it still consists of life. When you see the blood that is on your doorpost, that is going to be a symbol to you and it would be a symbol symbol of life that you will have the destroyer not come and destroy you but that you will be preserved inside the house when God sees the blood that is on the doorposts and over the top of the door he continues and then describes verse 14 this was going to be observed every single year throughout the generations he continues and says that the people were to eat unleavened bread for seven days and if there was leaven eaten during that time then that person was to be cut off from Israel the first day would be the first day of the of the feast of unleavened bread and that day would then be the Passover and there would continue to be seven more days of the unleavened bread the first day and the seventh day were to be holy days where there would be no work done. It would be functioning as if it were a Sabbath, which there would then be a holy assembly where they rested from their work and they worshiped God. The eating of that then unleavened bread began on the 14th day, continuing one week until the 21st day, verse 18. And then we're told in verse 25, when they come into the land, you're supposed to continue to do this in verse 27 and teach your children to do this as we looked at even last week. This was to be a constant memorial and a constant reminder. Now, notice then after giving the directions in regards to what the Passover was to be, verse 29, at midnight... The Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne. To the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night. He and all his servants and all the Egyptians. 
And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians, verse 33, were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in the cloaks of their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked of the Egyptians for jewelry and for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians, and the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And now the exodus occurs. And this, after this wailing happens, Pharaoh summons for Moses and Aaron and says, Get out of here. Do what you have said you were going to do. Go and worship your God. Take your flocks. Take everything. Just go ahead and go. The response of the Egyptians in verse 33 is amazing. We're all going to die. You can imagine what they're thinking. If the tenth plague was the death of the firstborn and we don't let them go, what's the eleventh plague going to be? Get them out before we all die. You need to get them out of here. And so urgently, they're like, here, take everything, just leave. Here, jewelry, clothes, what else do you want? Leave the land. And notice something that is very quickly observed there in verse 38, but I want you to see it. There were Egyptians that went with them. A mixed multitude also went up with them. We've noticed in the the plagues unfolding that there were people who were listening. There were some people who were believing. Like when the plague of hail comes, some of the people believed what Moses said and pulled in their livestock and had their slaves come into the houses. Some did not believe and they were decimated. And you're seeing God single-handedly teaching people, here's who is the Lord that you need to serve Him. Such that even we read about people who were not of Israel also coming along with them and leaving the land. And thus the exodus occurs. What I want to spend the majority of our time talking about tonight is that the concept of the Passover is perhaps the greatest shadow that God was giving to reveal what He was going to do in Christ. It is the greatest shadow of what He was going to do in regards to redemption and salvation. And I'm going to observe five things. I could. I really feel like I could do a multi-sermon series because there's the Passover is everything to the New Testament. Everything that is happening in, in this scene is all relevant to New Testament salvation and picturing what Christ was going to do. Tonight we're going to talk about five things that we see in terms of elements of this Passover that were intended to show what people were going to have in Christ when Christ arrived. Number one, there cannot be an exodus without the Passover. There cannot be an exodus without 
the Passover. We have a, a critical sequence that is being laid out here in this Passover scene. The lambs must be slain. The blood must be put on the doorposts. And then an exodus can occur. And it must be in that order. Lamb slain, here's blood, now exodus, people are set free. And that is the whole idea of what the New Testament is just beating on again and again and again about how salvation has to work. What passage we know very well, Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There has to be blood shed. There must be blood put forward if there's going to be an exodus, if there's going to be redemption, if there's going to be able to be set free. There has to be blood. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 really ties it together. Here in speaking about Jesus, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Notice the picture. You need a lamb slain, blood put forward, people set free. That's what he's describing. How could the people be set free from their lifelong slavery? Through death, he could destroy the power of the devil so that we could be set free. And so Exodus is giving this monumental picture of that God is going to set the people free from their enslavement to sin. You have Romans repeating that concept again and again. Chapter 6 and chapter 8, he'll use the phrase that we've been set free over and over again. Set free are the words that the Apostle Paul uses in the book of Romans. And how many places do we get these pictures in the New Testament of Jesus? One that was read for us this morning during the Lord's Supper. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You need a lamb slain so that there is blood, so there is an exodus. Here is the Lamb who's taking away the sins of the world. That's what John the baptizer is going around preaching. We know the Apostle Paul in chapter 5 verse 7. What does he call Christ? Our Passover has been slain. Since we have our Passover lamb who has been given to us, now that changes how we live our lives. And that's the argument that he makes in chapter 5 of of 1 Corinthians. Peter does the same thing in speaking of Christ, calls him a lamb without blemish or defect. He's the perfect lamb so that his sacrifice can set us free. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 says, Likewise, offered himself as unblemished before God. When this death of the firstborn occurs and the Passover sequence occurs, all of this is set forward to show you can't be set free until the lamb is slain. There is no exodus without Passover. We need the blood. We need the lamb. And therefore, only through that Are we able to be set free? So Passover is setting that forward for us. Number two. Do you notice this picture? Judgment belongs on all. And the blood is the only reason that God passes by and withholds judgment. 
It is interesting that God does not just merely say, I'm going to show a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites, and I will just pass over Israel. He could have done that, right? Could have just said, you know, I know where who are Israelites and I know who are Egyptians. It's not like God really needed some kind of indicator on the door. Uh, good thing you put that there. I didn't know that Israelites just took over that house and it was you saved me from killing the wrong families. That's not the reason why God did that. God knows who's an Israelite and who's an Egyptian. And God could have just had all the firstborn of Egypt die and, and nothing. There is something that is intended here. The very intention that is being given to us in chapter 12 and verse 13 is if that blood is not there, then it doesn't matter who's the inhabitant of the house. That firstborn is going to die. Blood. And I love the way that's worded there. This blood is going to be a sign for you, verse 13. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the picture that's being given here is the idea that there is rightful judgment that God could have done to all. But because of the blood, Israel was going to be spared. That's what's being laid out. Through this blood, through the lambs being slain and the blood being put on the doorposts, this would now show Israel as distinct and would not receive judgment while the rest of those who did not do this would. Romans 3.21-26, I think, is perhaps one of the best summaries encapsulating the concept of atonement that you have in the New Testament that ties so closely to what this concept is about judgment belongs to all and blood's the only reason why God passes by. Romans 3.21 But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are now justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by His blood, effective through faith. He did this to show His righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that He Himself is righteous and that He justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. That takes all of the Passover concepts and dumps it into what is happening in regards to Christ. And I think it is important to read that text carefully. So often God is pictured as standing there in heaven, wrathful against us, desiring to wipe us out. And we need the sacrifice of Jesus to turn away the wrath of God before everybody is barbecued. Notice that is not at all what Romans 3 says. 
Romans 3 says the opposite. Notice it says there in, in the middle there when it says, He did this to show His righteousness because in His divine forbearance, His restraint, He had passed over the sins previously committed. Not... In his wrath, he lit everybody up like a Christmas tree. And then thankfully, Jesus came and now it's okay. How often God is pictured as if he were some pagan God, ready to strike on the spot, kill at a moment's notice, and the sacrifice of Jesus is called God now. It's not what it says. It says that God was passing over sins. We've read that in the prophets all the time, haven't we? We just are reading the astounding patience of God generation after generation and after generation. And guess what? God is not just to do that. And therefore needed a sacrifice so that he could still be just in passing over sins and passing over sins and being patient and being patient and being patient and long-suffering and long-suffering and long-suffering with so many people and still be the justifier as well. Think about that's the Passover picture. God did the whole thing. And He tells Israel, just put the blood on the doorposts and I'll pass over. And you will not be destroyed. And the same thing is being given here as a picture to us. God does not desire for any to perish and has given opportunity for all to repent. This is why we asked the question last week, why doesn't, when Pharaoh says no, why doesn't God just go to plague 10, boom, let's kill him? That's not what he wants. But the stubborn rebellion of Pharaoh continued for God to display his might and wonders. You continue to ask why you should serve God. God will continue to show you why. But the the stance of God toward the world is a stance that he wants people to be saved. And that's why the world continues on as it does in all of its wickedness and all of its evil and all of its rebellion. Because God has shown for thousands of years that he is a long-suffering God who is overlooking sins, desiring for all to repent. But eventually judgment does come to those sins. But he waits and waits and waits and waits. And this is what was being given to us here, is God now is putting forward the appropriate sacrifice that we needed so that God does not have to judge us. This is what God has wanted is to put forward the appropriate sacrifice. And this is the picture of the Passover is that there needs to be a lamb. There needs to be blood so that we can be set free. Judgment belongs on all. And the reason why God passes by and withholds judgment is because there is blood and he puts that forward himself. That's what the Passover lays out. Number three. The Lord's Supper is the culmination of the Passover. Absolutely, the Lord's Supper is the culmination of the Passover. It should be striking to us 
that all of the Gospels that record the Lord's Supper institution, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Matthew, and the Gospel of Luke, all note that it was the first day of unleavened bread, which is the setup for the Passover, when Jesus then institutes the Lord's Supper. Luke 22, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, and notice what is underlined, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And this is the day when Jesus sits down with his disciples and says, All right, now let's remember me. The connection between the Passover and the Lord's Supper cannot be missed. Not only is it just a connection, it's the fulfillment of the Passover. It is the memorial of all of this coming together and driving home in our mind these concepts of the necessity of a lamb and the necessity of blood. These are the pictures that are being given to us because how amazing it is is what's going to happen that very evening. We're going to read about it and you see it over in the Gospel of John. When the Passover lambs are being slain, who's going to be dying? Jesus is going to be on a cross dying. Here is the Passover lamb, not just dying at any old time during the year, but at Passover. And is instituting the Lord's Supper on the first day of unleavened bread, which at that twilight was when the lambs were slain. So that the Passover could be commemorated on that following day. It is not by accident that this happens. Even more staggering is the whole scene that's set before us in in John's gospel, which reminds us that there was a tradition, a custom that was given there that there would be criminals released on the Passover. And two men are put forward. Jesus or Barabbas. Pilate stands up and says, it's the custom on the Passover to set someone free. And guess who gets set free? The criminals get set free. And the lamb goes to be slain. The Passover is oozing through the sacrifice that Jesus gives. In fact, that is the elements of the Lord's Supper. We just recently studied 1 Corinthians 11 and talked about the distinguishing of the elements. Let me bring that back in again because you see it in the Passover scene as well. The bread represents the body of Christ. That's the lamb that was slain. Here is the perfect lamb of God who has come put himself forward as the appropriate sacrifice so that our sins can be dealt with. Here is his body given for us. We have that Passover element. And what is the effect of that Passover element? But that the, then the captives are set free, which is we talked about the fruit of the vine, the blood of the covenant, a new covenant, which brings in the forgiveness of sins so that we can be free. The Lord's Supper is the culmination of the Passover. It is a reminder to us of all of those shadows and concepts of what the Passover meant are all being fulfilled in Christ and saying, this is what you remember. Here is the lamb that's given to you that God has provided the appropriate sacrifice and look at what is accomplished for you. The people are set free. An exodus has occurred. And now you can be forgiven and be in relationship with God. That is the precious relationship that we enjoy. Number four, being set free from slavery means we belong to God. Notice what happens right after the Passover and the Exodus. Chapter 13, verse 1. Very first words. Okay, they've come out. 
After giving the institution of the Passover, chapter 13, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. The Passover meant, now the firstborn belong to God. And the New Testament again constantly does the very same description. 1 Corinthians 16, 6 verse 19. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Why? Because you were bought with a price. Blood was paid. Christ died. Therefore, you belong to Him. That's what this sets up. I just set you free. Your firstborn belonged to me. Instead of your firstborn dying, and instead of you being still enslaved to sin, and instead of you experiencing the judgment, I have paid a price. That's the whole idea of ransom and redemption. And you're set free, but you belong to me. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17-23 through 23, makes the very same argument that Christians purify themselves before God because they've been ransomed. Paul and Peter both hit that idea over and again. Don't you know who you are? Don't you know you were bought with a price? Don't you know what it means that Jesus died for you and now you belong to him and you are not your own any longer? You constantly are given that picture in the scriptures and that comes from the Passover. The Passover was an indicator to them that being set free from slavery means we belong to God. He bought us and paid for us and set us free out of that slavery and so we must belong to him. Which leads then to number five. Did you notice that the Passover was a shared experience? It is interesting that God does not tell each of the individuals, okay, you can sit by yourselves and you're just going to eat your little Passover portion. That it was a community event. You had your whole household, and if the lamb was too much for that household, which would mean uh, you had a very small house and didn't have a, a lot of members of that house, then you would get the neighbors next door and we'll combine together for the lamb and we'll do this together. It is a picture that it would be a, a shared experience together and that all the people of Israel would do together. And they had something in common with that. And you see that in the New Testament all the time. When the apostles write about our salvation, you will notice that they will always speak of it in terms of us. Ours. He saved us. You know, he could have made that very personal. He saved you. You know, and we'd go, yep, he saved me. And we're in a society right now when it comes to God and spirituality that we're trying to make this thing a very private, isolated thing. You can do it by yourself, so you have internet church and you can be worshiping God in your own backyard or you know on the on the TV or watching it or, or whatever. And that concept was never found in the New Testament, and it's not found even in the the Passover. The whole Passover was the idea of this community event in bringing people together, and all of us remembering together, this is what God did for all of us. As all of Israel stopped and thought about, we were slaves in Egypt, and God has delivered us and saved us. 
You know, have you ever thought about that on a global level on a Sunday morning once? You just kind of sit back and think about it. It's easy for me to do that on vacation and think because I'm not here and think about, you know, there's all those Christians in Florida. They're all worshiping God today. Here I am in California and we're all worshiping God today and the people in other countries all together on the same day are all remembering the same salvation experience. And it is something that's supposed to be a community event where we are coming together and doing this. This is what we saw in 1 Corinthians 11, this emphasis that Paul makes on when you come together to partake, when you come together to do this. This is a together thing. And that's what the Passover was about. But though it was a together concept and a community of partaking and remembering in this Passover, notice what was supposed to happen. Chapter 13, verse 8. You shall tell your son on that day. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It's interesting that the two are supposed to sit together and you're not supposed to throw one out of the other. We come and do this act together. And what we sit back and remember is God did this for me. How interesting that it becomes very personal in that Passover meal. What are you supposed to tell your son? That God redeemed me. And that is supposed to be what we're doing when we think about Christ. Is that we are to take this event very personally. That yes, it is what God has done for us. And we are all in Christ together and in this community. And we are enjoying the supper together and in this memorial together. Reflecting not just on what God has done for us globally, universally. Isn't it great that he saved the world broadly? But that you make it very real and say, this is what God has done for me. We must take the sacrifice of Jesus personally to ourselves every day to carry the cross with us every day to reflect on the freedom that we have in Christ every day because Jesus did this for you. He gave himself for you and he gave himself for us. And when we zero in on that memorial every Sunday, and really hit what those two elements represent and remember what God has done for me. That's supposed to help us live differently on Monday through Saturday. That we take what He's done for us and take it right to heart. The Passover was simply showing us some amazing things that were going to happen in Christ. That He would set us free, but there needed to be blood. And without blood, there cannot be an exodus. We thank God that He has been so merciful and gracious to set us free from our sins. We'll sing a song now and we invite you to come to Jesus. And we invite you to see him as the Passover lamb, the one who takes away the sins of the world. 
and in the divine foreknowledge of God, knowing many hundreds of years in advance that Jesus would be the appropriate sacrifice of atonement. It was divinely passing over sins, showing pictures like in the Passover of what God would do to save. I hope you'll give your life to him tonight, that you rededicate yourself to him, that you'd follow him more faithfully based on seeing what Jesus has done for us. Anyway, we can help you come to him. Once you come now, will we stand and will we sing?